Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. That was our reporter Pokeri Paiwai who was at Ratana Pa. Uh, speaking at his press conference yesterday, Prime Minister Christopher Luxon said he was expecting to be uh, challenged at the Ratana today. That's what we've always expected. Um, you know, I've been to Ratana last year, I've been to Waitangi several times, um, even before I came to politics, uh, and that's my, my observation, is that's the place where we should have challenge and provocation and stimulation, and that's okay. Uh, you know, we are a country that has a diverse set of views. The day we all think exactly the same, we've got a big, big problem in this country. But it doesn't mean that we can't go forward together acknowledging that we will have differences with each other as well. And so that's what I'm focused on, is how do we take this country of ours forward? How do we keep it united, acknowledging that we will have differences of opinion and that's okay. Mr Luxon also responded to accusations made by Te Party Māori co-leader Debbie Ngāriwa Packer on yesterday's programme that his government was reflecting elements of white supremacy in the rolling back of policies affecting Māori. I think it's entirely inappropriate. I think it's very offensive and I think it's very divisive and very unhelpful. And I think what's even disappointing is when you see political party leaders picking up on those statements. Let's speak now to RNZ political reporter Giles Dexter, who will also be at Ratana today. Morena, Giles. Good morning. So uh, Christopher Luxon is expecting to be challenged there. What kind of reception do you think he will actually get uh, on the ground? Well, it'll, it'll be important to, to, to note that there will be that manakitanga when he does attend, but you can expect him to be challenged quite strongly in some of the corridor. Uh, from from the part last year, he was um, you know sort of warned quite strongly not to fear co-governance. It'll be the same sort of thing today. Uh, you know, sort of carrying on some of that corridor from the weekend's hui. You can expect that there'll be a lot of discussion around this uh, treaty principles bill, which is something that he's in a bit of a bind talking about because he personally feels it's divisive and national. You know, they, they've said they'll support it to its. Um, First reading is select committee, but haven't really given a commitment. They'll support it beyond that. It's an act party bill. But as a prime minister, he's responsible for talking about his coalition government. So that will uh, be sure to to come up more than a few times, one can imagine. Yeah, I mean, he has talked about the National Party policy being clear on that. But there was still, I noted at the uh, post-cabinet press conference yesterday, a lot of questioning of really trying to nail him down about there being no intention to support uh, the bill beyond uh, uh, the select committee process, but but not still ruling out that support. Will he? Will we see any change in that language uh, given the hui and and where he will be today? Yeah, politicians hate using the phrase "rule in" or "rule out," don't they? But um, it is it is a. It would make life so much simpler, though, Giles. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, he said there's no commitment or no intention, but you know, part of the select committee process means that people's views. Um, you know, are put on public record forever and ever. They 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 go into into the database, and so you know the, there could be enough depth of feeling that sways nationals' uh, mind. But one thing that is worth considering is that um, New Zealand First has um, ruled out supporting it beyond uh, beyond select committee. But he will he will have to answer questions about it, and it will it will come up again again today. I mean, especially given that. Um, David Seymour will be absent. The App Party are not sending anybody to Ratana today. So, um, you know, Christopher Luxon is going to have to bear the brunt of something that is, you know, a coalition partner's policy. Who else is going to be there today? 
Uh, so we'll see Chris Hipkins uh, for the first time this year. Labour um, will will be there as well. Um, so Party Mario already there. They were welcomed on yesterday. Debbie Nadeau Apaka is Morihu, so you know, she she's been there for a while. But Te Party Mario was welcomed along uh, yesterday with the Kingi Tanga, which they say is just sort of part of the fact that they're you know they're more aligned with Indigenous leaders than they are as politicians. That's not the first time that's happened. Uh, Madame Fox and Tirurua Flabble also were welcomed along with the King Tanga a few years ago. Uh, the Green Party will be there, uh, all but three Green MPs. One of the notable absentees from the Greens will be James Shaw. Uh, he's currently on a family holiday, but we've been told he will be at Waitangi. Okay, what about the significance of this event uh, politically? How, how important is it that this goes well for everyone? Yeah, it's always sort of seen as the unofficial curtain raise of the political year, but most years, political things do sort of tend to happen, uh, you know, before this gets underway. I mean, last year, it was seen as the unofficial curtain raise, but we'd already had a prime ministerial resignation, and Ratana was sort of uh, Jacinda Ardern's uh, passing the baton to Chris Hipkins. Uh, this year, we've already had uh, the hui at Tiranga Waiwai. So it, it, it's, you know, used as an occasion to mark um, T.W. Ratana's birthday. And, you know, they've, they've, Ratana has always had that alignment with with Labour. And at some point or another, um, other political parties have gone along to pay their respects as well. But there is always a sort of reluctance um, amongst the Moruhu that this does become uh, a, a political circus. But, you know, where, where politicians go, there will always be that circus following them. Um, and so this this year, you know, it will be sort of seen as a continuation of uh, the Hui at Tudanga Waiwai and then, you know, sort of carrying on the discussions there and then throwing that forward to, to, to Waitangi in a couple of weeks. Thank you for that. That was uh, Giles Dexter, our political reporter at Ratana today. It is 19 past seven. A property economist is welcoming the Reserve Bank's plans to introduce debt-to-income ratios or lending rules for house buyers. From the middle of this year, owner-occupiers will have loans set to six times their income, while investors, it will be set at seven times their income. Loan-to-value ratios will be relaxed. They're slightly different, of course, at the same time, intending, uh, intended to help first home buyers who can service a loan but can't raise a big enough deposit. So let's try and make sense of this with Kelvin Davidson at CoreLogic, Chief Property Economist there. Hi, Kelvin. We've got two things going on here at once. Uh, what do you think, firstly, the overall impact for a, a young first-home buyer coming into the market in the middle of the year trying to get access to uh, a loan? Yeah, it could potentially be positive. I and mean, DTI, is, as the Reserve Bank has said, and, and we've been saying for a while, I don't think they're really going to do much straight away simply because mortgage rates are doing that job at the moment. So debt-to-income ratio caps are very much about the next kind of cycle when mortgage rates do fall again. So they're probably neutral for a start. So really the, the thing to focus on in the middle of the year, if these rules come in, they're still only proposed at this stage, but if they come in, I think the focus is really on those loan-to-value ratio rules. Uh, a bit of an easing there makes it easier to get into the market with less of a deposit. So, yeah, potentially playing into the hands of those first-home buyers who are struggling to get that deposit but can service a loan. So, yeah, potentially a small net boost to the market at that time. What about investors uh, who might be, you know, have two or three houses or one looking to buy a second house and they can – this limit on them, is that likely to have an impact? 
Yeah, potentially could have a, a positive impact as well and for their ability to buy. So I think from both first-time buyers and uh, investors' perspective, it is worth keeping an eye on those LVR rules. I mean, for investors, we're also seeing rents increase, interest deductibility coming back. So some of those things are shifting in their favour, but still at the moment, mortgage rates are high and, and for a typical investment purchase, top-ups required out of other income. So not expecting a flood of investors, but they are a group to certainly keep an eye on from the middle of the year. What do we make about the read of the New Zealand property market if it's six times income is the limit? Um, there are other countries who have limits. I don't think they're as high as six, or they might be. perhaps they might be similar. But in terms of the ability for the average person to buy a house, I mean, does it not suggest that things are still out of whack? Yeah, well, there's no denying that we've got an affordability problem in New Zealand. As you say, the DTI restrictions still exist in other countries, and they are at lower levels. In the UK, you're sort of talking three or four, something like that, as opposed to six or seven that the Reserve Bank's suggested here. So, yeah, it does suggest um, that there's an affordability issue here. There are some some legacy issues. It's just reflecting reality. Simply, our house prices have, have always been higher in relation to income, so you have to set DTIs higher or else you'd completely, completely stump lending activity. So I think it's reflecting reality, but also we have an affordability issue, and that's where I just think these DTIs could be part of the answer. It's not the full answer, but if you tie house prices more closely to incomes over the long run, then that should help affordability. It might not improve it, but at least stop it getting too much worse. And, and then you've got housing supply comes in as well. So what's the bigger issue here for New Zealanders looking ahead in terms of housing? Is it going to be the ability of young people to raise a deposit? I mean, they might, on an average income, they're, they're going to have to find two, $300,000. Or is it going to be serviceability of loans uh, if interest rates come back to a more uh, neutral position, you know, five, in the fives or something. I mean, what what is the big problem here? Because do we want to end up in a country where the only way to get in a house is is to have a, a hand, hand up from your, from your folks? Yeah, I don't think anybody really wants that. It, you know, it's the, the fabled sort of Kiwi dream to, to be able to buy that house and, and I think want it available to, to everybody and, and, and not depending on generational wealth. So, yeah, I think mortgage rates will eventually return to some kind of normality as we get inflation better under control and and so I think the deposit will be always the key issue and and, and so we need to try and keep that as long as possible. Part of that's potentially DTIs, part of that's building more houses and so uh, but I I would also point out it's it's never been easy to be a first home buyer. Uh, I I, I suspect if you talk to people... No but we don't, I guess the point I make is we don't want to see another crazy boom like we saw and given it was obviously COVID and the circumstances involved there but that was very unhealthy Yeah oh that's right absolutely and this is why I think DTIs are a part it's not the full solution but it's it's only part of it if you tie house prices more closely to incomes then it, then it will keep some kind of control on affordability and housing supply is obviously a big part of that answer too and, and we've made good steps on that front and more a different mix of housing, building more townhouses, more intensified use of land. So future steps on that on that front would be really welcome too. Good stuff. Thank you, Calvin. Calvin Davidson, the Logics Chief Property Economist. It is 11 minutes to 8. Well, the Green Party says it's horrified at the government's decision to deploy Defence Force staff to help target Houthi fighters attacking ships in the Red Sea. 
We're joined now by the Greens co-leader, Marama Davidson. Kia ora, good morning. Morning, Corin. What is your key opposition here to this decision? Our role has always been to push for peace, Corin, and this government's actions have to be focused on enduring peace through justice and not on escalating conflict. The United Nations Security Council recently uh, made a ruling on this and that it it effectively it called on the Houthis to cease their actions immediately and in accordance were noted, I should say, not a mandate for action, but certainly noted the right of member states to take defensive action over their ships. Is it not unreasonable for New Zealand as a trading nation to help with that? The hypocrisy of the statements from the government yesterday, uh, picking up on exactly what you are raising, Corin, is that this government's decision will, in fact, inflame tensions. We just had an expert there highlighting that that is exactly what could happen, that further anti-Western sentiment, I think he called it, um, could result from these attacks. For New Zealand to not hold on to its independent and principle-based on the long-standing history of our particular peacekeeping role. For New Zealand to throw that away in an instant without any debate is absolutely horrifying. And what the government really needs to be doing is focusing its actions on de-escalating tensions in the Middle East and pushing for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. I understand, but as a matter of principle, when it comes to things that New Zealand might be prepared to contribute towards international efforts or US-led efforts uh, that involve the military, defending shipping lanes and free trade would have to be fairly high, wouldn't it, given our absolute dependence as a country on the free movement of goods? It's exactly on a principle-based Uh, agenda that this government has often operated and should continue to operate. And if we are really concerned, Corinne, about trade, about shipping lanes, about parcels getting through to where they need to get to, then it is an immediate ceasefire that this government should be pushing pushing for, uh, joining the uh, International Court of Justice cases to investigate the genocidal actions of Israel on Palestine, on Gaza, on West Bank, and the regional power play that is happening right now between different state and non-state groups always ends up leaving ordinary people, ordinary civilians, caught in those little crossfires, and it's up to the international community to protect peace and human rights. The opposition, you weren't consulted about this, were you? Would you have expected, or do you at least expect now, there to be a parliamentary debate about this deployment? At the very least, so that we can ask the questions like, what exactly are the US's strategic intentions? And has there been an analysis on us hooking our ship, hooking ourselves to the trailer, of their um, international interventions to even have that debate. So, Corin, we will be asking for that urgent debate. This decision has been made without any, any consultation whatsoever with the elected representatives across the House. And the Greens will be asking for that debate to happen as soon as possible to question the very motives and to tease out the very understandings of what we have got to gain and what we have got to lose in a long-term future for siding with the US, with the West in this attack. 
The the root cause of this, you believe, is the Gaza situation. We heard there from Frank Gardner who was saying, well, there are... That is a little bit opportunistic to suggest that the Houthis were simply just targeting um, Israeli ships and that it was some sort of protest against that, that there are other factors at play here. Well, to, to undermine the genocidal actions of Israel in Gaza and West Bank and the tens of thousands, loss of lives, the millions, the million, over a million displaced, the struggle for children and families for food, water, medical care and dignity and for that then to be reduced to opportunistic and the naivety of not linking this very action and the danger of this intervention to what is happening in Gaza astounds me that anybody with any credential would actually put that naivety out there for the public to hear. So do you think, that, well, look, because there was a corresponding, uh, well, you could argue uh, the timing, the, the comment from the foreign minister yesterday about the two-state solution criticising Benjamin Netanyahu and his comments for uh, suggesting that he didn't support one or didn't think there was one that was viable. So, I mean, New Zealand is pushing back the other way on that score. So I think that question, Corin, for me, is about why is it that the British and American governments are preferring to escalate, to put incredible risk to increasing tensions and go to war to prevent the Houthis from attacking ships, rather than focusing all of their collective efforts on working towards a ceasefire in Gaza. And then underneath that is the enduring peaceful solution that needs to recognise and affirm Palestine and their independence, or for goodness sake, just simply their right to live and live with dignity. Madam Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Green's co-leader there. We'll have more on this. We'll hear from the Defence Minister, Judith Collins, after seven this morning. It is 23 minutes past six. And you are listening to Morning Report on RNZ National. Well, experts are warning that New Zealand's latest deployment to the Middle East could be interpreted as supporting Israel in the Gaza conflict. A team of six Defence Force personnel are being deployed to support precision attacks on military targets responsible for Houthi strikes in the Red Sea. The government says the deployment is part of a long-standing commitment to maritime security, denying it is in any way connected to the war in Gaza. But two experts have told RNZ this is wishful thinking and New Zealand's international reputation could be on the line. Our political reporter Annika Smith has more. Iran-backed Houthi rebels have been attacking container ships in the Red Sea since the start of the Israel-Gaza conflict. Earlier this month, New Zealand joined 10 other countries in calling for an immediate end to the attacks, but only two, the US and the UK, offered physical assistance. Prime Minister Christopher Luxon says Aotearoa is now pitching in. We are sending six NZDF personnel to support any future military action against Houthi targets in Yemen and the Red Sea. The six-person team will support military action against Houthi targets, including precision targeting. The Defence Minister, Judith Collins, was asked repeatedly what branch of the Defence Force the staff will be drawn from, but she refused to elaborate. Security analyst Paul Buchanan says they'll be positioned in what he calls the kill chain. They're not the guy pulling the trigger, but they're supplying the information, very detailed, very technologically sophisticated information 
of where to point the gun. Labor and the Greens are already flagging concerns about the deployment. Labor's foreign affairs spokesperson David Parker going as far as saying it has shades of Iraq. New Zealand, despite quite a lot of pressure from the United States, Australia and Great Britain at the time, stayed out of the conflict in Iraq when Iraq was invaded. Uh, we think history shows that was a very wise decision of the then Labor government. This is not identical, uh, but it is similar. The government has confirmed the deployment was requested by the United States, but argues it's in line with New Zealand's long-standing role in maritime security. Paul Buchanan says the move may be interpreted as New Zealand shifting its weight behind the United States, which backs Israel in the Gaza conflict. Otago University international relations professor Robert Patman agrees, pointing out it contradicts New Zealand's voting record in the UN General Assembly, having twice supported an immediate humanitarian truce or ceasefire. There is a bit of a tension here. We're saying there must be a ceasefire, and yet we're militarily supporting contributing to support by a country which has, which has exercised the veto three times in the UN Security Council. The Prime Minister Christopher Luxon bristled when asked if the Middle East deployment was an extension of the Israel-Gaza conflict in yesterday's post-Cabinet media conference. I have to say to you, I think you are absolutely wrong to conflate those two issues. We are standing up for values very clearly here about freedom of navigation. These are long-held beliefs of New Zealand for a long period of time. Paul Buchanan says the coalition will have its reasons for pushing ahead with the deployment, but the world may not see it that way. One thing I would be concerned about is that New Zealand now has planted its flag firmly on the side of the Western backers of Israel. Robert Patman agrees. It may be construed, I think perhaps unfairly, that we have basically decided to support the United States position in relation to Gaza. The six-person team will be deployed to the Middle East until the end of July at the latest. That was our political reporter, Annika Smith. Well, it's 50 years ago today since the opening ceremony for the Christchurch Commonwealth Games. The friendly games, as they were known, captured the country's attention for 10 days and were regarded as a major success. Now, New Zealand's athletes also feared very well, winning 35 medals in total. Amongst the most memorable of our nine golds came in the pool, where a 17-year-old Christchurch local, Janie Parkhouse, won the 800-metre freestyle. Here is the closing stages of the final. It's Parkhouse all the way. The Jeremy close. I think she's done it. Parkhouse has won. <laughs> Can she believe it? And she's broken nine minutes. What a hero! Yes, 50 years on, we're joined by Janie Hudgel, who is now the Swimming New Zealand's president. Also on the line, another recognisable champion from those games, weightlifter Precious McKenzie, who competed for England in 1974 before switching allegiance to New Zealand. Welcome to you both. Uh, I'll start with you, Janie, because we just heard that magnificent commentary. Take us back to that race. Uh, you were just a teenager. It must have been quite something when you realised what you'd done. It certainly was, Corin, and thank you for having me on this morning. Um, look, it was just such an exciting time. I think we'd all got really fired up and excited watching Dick Taylor the day before win, and then Mark Treffers, um, and who won the gold medal in the 400 medley earlier that day as well. So we were pumped up, ready to go, and um, I just thought, well, you know, this is my shot, nothing to lose, let's go for it. Did you feel that sense that there was something special brewing, that the, the country's imagination had been captured? 
I believe so, very much. I, uh, it was a wonderful week for the whole country and for the city. But for me personally, I think I had improved my times tremendously into go, with the heat swim that I did. I did 9.04, I believe, which was like 20 seconds faster than my New Zealand record. And then, uh, so I really knew I had the potential to do something special. I, you know, I, I, you know, secretly hoping for the gold, but um, I knew that I had a tough job in front of me with those uh, Australians, those fast little Australians there. And, um, but, you know, it all came together well on the day, which is the main thing. Magnificent. Now, Precious, um, you were competing for England at these games. What did you think when you got off the plane and arrived in Christchurch <laughs> for the so-called friendly games? Uh, did did you like the look of what you saw? Yes, immediately. The moment I got into the plane, and it was nice and warm, of course, being summertime here, it was fantastic. What a feeling. And you liked it so much you stayed. Yes. Uh, I was interviewed by... Um, radio station, I forgot who it was, and they asked me, would you would like to come? I believe that you want to come to live here in New Zealand as well. Oh, I said, that's definitely, it's me. And of course, I, was, I, I used to belong into the shoe, shoe industry. And uh, they offered me a job straight away because I was a qualified pressman on, the, on a press machine. And that's how it all started. Very good. I mean, there's a tendency to say this was the friendly games, but this was also very competitive. I was speaking to Keith Quinn earlier, uh, Janie. He was saying, you know, when it came to the competition, it was very high standard. Very high standard, yes. Yes, it was indeed. And, um, you know, it's not the Olympics, but it's the next step, isn't it? It's, it's got the top Commonwealth countries. And I think, especially for swimming, you know, Australia is, a, is just a, a world beater. In Canada, England, of course, you know, um, it, you, we really had the top competition. I had the world record holder in my race, so there was nothing, um, nothing that that you know, it was a it was a very exciting uh, and competitive event. Precious for yourself, um, very competitive. You obviously went to a few games. Do you think that it is something that we should carry on? that Christchurch should have another crack at, that there is still great value in the Commonwealth Games? Yes, I really think so, because look at Melbourne. And they, they want to walk away from it. And it's a shame, because the Commonwealth Games is one of the best uh, gatherings that you can ever have, because the minority sports is the ones, like weightlifting, we are the minority. We don't get uh, very good support, unfortunately. And also the finance. Fantastic stuff. Look, we've got to leave it there. We've hit a half past eight. But uh, thank you very much to Precious McKenzie, course weightlifter who competed for England in 1974 before switching allegiance to New Zealand. Also, we were speaking there to Janie Hudgel, who was, uh, of course, swimming under the name of Jamie. Uh, Janie Parkhouse uh, back in 74, winning the 800 metres freestyle, uh, winning the gold. Fantastic stuff. It is half past eight. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 